you know, you look at J Jim Elliott, who was martyred in 1956, missionary, um, you know, hailed a hero, a martyr for the faith. And then 2017, John Allen Chow, martyred in almost exactly the same way, also killed by a spear and hailed an absolute fool and a flag bearer for colonialism. <laughs> That's how society has changed in, our, in the way that we think. So let's get rid of get rid of the word missions, missionary. Those words have way too much baggage. And we need new frameworks and new ways of understanding how we serve in the world. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is the show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. It is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, as well as all of the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. Plus, there's great new digital content uploaded daily to our website, premierchristianity.com. Head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe for more information. On today's show, I'm speaking to Craig Greenfield. In this episode of The Profile, he tells me a little of his life story, why he gave up the relative comfort of his life in New Zealand to live in a Cambodian slum, what it was like living in open community with two young children in one of Vancouver's most deprived areas, and why he thinks we need to reframe what it means to be a modern-day missionary. You're listening to The Profile. Well, perhaps, Craig, we could start by you telling us a little bit about your own testimony. Could you tell us, did you grow up in a Christian home? Was there a moment when you first decided to follow Jesus? How did that happen for you? Yeah, so, um, well, I actually grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents were missionaries and my grandparents were missionaries as well. Um, so, of course, at a very young age, I decided I didn't want anything to do with faith. And uh, I don't know why, but um, for some reason, it didn't seem like something that I wanted to have anything to do with. But what I did also grow up with was a faith that was lived out um, by my parents. And in particular, the way that they lived it out, I would say the word I would use now is radical hospitality. So they welcomed um, everyone from refugees to children with intellectual disabilities to people who had just come out of prison. Our house was full of them. <laughs> and uh, so that was just a very, that had a very powerful impact on me. And I recognized that this was what following Jesus looked like, that there was no kind of, and this is probably why I rejected it. I realized there's no way to do this kind of half-heartedly, you know, you're either following Jesus radically with all your life or forget about it. So I was like, well, I can't do that. So I better forget about it. But I did have an encounter um, with Jesus at the age of 21. And um, that really turned my life around. And the following year, I went to Cambodia and for six months and had some very interesting things there that uh, that really shaped the rest of my life. Yeah. And then you came back from Cambodia and um, something else happened that really shaped your life, didn't it? You, you met a young lady. Can you tell us mm -hmm. about that? Yeah. So while I was in Cambodia, I began to really hang out with young people in the slums of Phnom Penh, the capital city. And I really just sensed that, you know, I I wasn't understanding these scriptures where Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Um, I've come to bring good news to the poor. I really wanted to go back and dig deep into those scriptures and understand what why is Jesus bringing good news to the poor? What is it about the gospel that sounds like good news to the poor? So I came back to New Zealand, where I grew up, with a real sense that I wanted to return long term to Cambodia and live in the slums amongst the poor and thinking, how am I ever going to find a, a wife or anyone who wants to do that with me? Um, but one day I met my wife, Nay, who's Cambodian refugee to New Zealand and had a real sense of call to return to her own people, serve her own people. And so I had a pretty good inkling that first time we met that uh, this would be a person who'd make a great life partner for me. 
So as a family, you've had a lot of crazy adventures. I've read some of your stories in um, one of your earlier books, The Verse of Jesus. And um, you lived in Cambodia for a while. And then with two very young children, you decided to um, relocate to Canada, to Vancouver, which on the surface of it sounds wonderful. Um, I've been yeah. to Vancouver. It's one of the nicest cities on earth. Um, but you guys decided to go somewhere very specific in Vancouver with very small children. How did that come about? Um, so we we lived in the slums in Cambodia for about six, seven years. And we lived very, very simply, very often no electricity. We didn't have a fridge that whole time, just used an icebox. And so we were being evicted from our second slum in Cambodia and the ministry that we had started was in the hands of Cambodians. So it was kind of looking like, well, do we start all over again in another community, maybe start a new ministry or, and we just sensed God saying, I'm drawing you somewhere else. And at that time I looked at a, actually looked at a list of the nicest cities in the world and and we we sense God was calling us to Vancouver, and I looked at this list, and Vancouver was number one, <laughs> and that's not at all why we chose it, but it was just uh, interestingly enough, Vancouver was number one, and Phnom Penh was where we were living was like right down the bottom. I think it was second or third from the bottom. So I was like, Lord, what are you doing here? Because we're called to the port. So we arrive in Vancouver, and. I mean, I had visited before and I had seen that there was this area called the downtown east side. And um, if you've never been there, uh, it's quite hard to imagine. I mean, people openly um, doing drugs, you know, smoking crack, shooting up, uh, dealing, prostitution, all out on the streets, just all over the footpath. Um, and I was actually there yesterday and things have deteriorated even worse i mean there are tents all up and down and just absolute carnage absolute carnage you just can't even imagine it um every now and then tourists would accidentally wander out of the downtown to the downtown east side and they would get the shock of their life they're like what are we doing here where am i we did exactly that when we were there we were visiting, yeah. visiting friends we were um a few years ago my children were about seven and ten and and, and i yeah. think that's what struck me the most about it is that vancouver is so beautiful so affluent yeah. you can just wander around and then you literally turn a corner yeah. And it's horrific. Like the things yeah. you see, I had two small children with yeah. me and I was like, oh my goodness, what, what's happened? Where are we? Like how I know. to stumble across it. It's, it's really I stark know. in contrast, isn't it? You, it? When you think about it, what it says about how, what we do in Western society, you know, those who are broken, we push to the edges. Um, but normally we're able to keep them under the rug. But in Vancouver's case, they haven't dealt with it enough to keep them hidden. And so they spill out. And these are the people that, you know, they're pushed to the margins of the city, literally. And these are the marginalized. These are people who have fallen through every every scaffolding and every structure that society sets up. And Vancouver, Canada, frankly, is not set up enough so that there are more people that fall through those cracks. And so you decided that was where you were going to take your family. That's right. Well, let me take a step back. One of the ways that I've come to understand the good news after that first time in Cambodia, just trying, figuring out what, why did Jesus say good news is for the poor? I, I didn't even understand that. By this time, my understanding was to understand the good news, we really need to know what the bad news is first. Because Jesus didn't just go around just saying the same thing over and over again to everybody. He didn't just have this four steps formula or four spiritual laws. He, he understood deeply people's situations. So me and a friend spent a little bit of time living as homeless men in this, in this downtown east side of Vancouver. Very soon after we arrived, actually, as a family. And so one of the things that we saw as we lived as homeless men ourselves was that people just ignore it. It's like you don't exist. Uh, you line up, you're nameless, you're faceless. You know, there's soup kitchens, there's food, no lack of food, um, there's homeless shelters, but there is just absolute no sense of social connection or community. There's no children, there's no families, nobody would live in that neighborhood except those who are forced to live there. 
So we recognize, well, if those things are the bad news, then perhaps the good news looks like the radical welcome of Jesus into family and community. And so that's really what we set out to do was to set up a Christian community of families and singles who would welcome those who are not welcome in Canadian society. And we would just open our homes. And our motto was cook too much food, invite too many people. And um, five nights a week, we would just open up our home. I mean, our home was open anyway, but five nights for dinner, um, we would have an open table and just see who turned up. And sometimes there were up to 40, 45 people total there, including the 10 or 12 that lived with us as a community. And um, that's where the shenanigans began. It was an incredible time. You tell lots of the amazing stories um, in your books um, about the incredible things that you saw happening during that time. But it must also have been, I mean, for most people probably listening to this, it would it would seem incredibly intimidating, perhaps very exhausting, quite scary. How did you work yeah. through all of those sort of fairly, I guess, normal human fears around living a lifestyle like that? You know, there's a very tiny number of genuinely dangerous communities around with genuinely dangerous people. I think we most we, mostly when we see poor people, we think we're scared and we think they're dangerous. But once we get to know them, we realize oh, that's just black eyed Johnny. So he's got a swastika tattooed on his face but he's a big cuddly teddy bear that guy wouldn't hurt a flea you know and that guy actually became my best friend in the downtown east side um i think we we jump to fear quickly because we don't know we fear what we don't know and actually downtown east side is not a dangerous place so fear was never really a part of it once we got over perhaps the initial kind of oh what's going on here but certainly exhaustion was <laughs> The intensity, the spiritual darkness, you know, for an introvert like me, being in a very people-oriented, relationally-oriented thing um, is tiring. And we had a lot of introverts in our community. Probably needed 10 real extroverts who were really oriented in that direction. That's but really interesting because my husband and I were talking about the book the other day and that's what he said to me. He said that would just exhaust me, the thought of having to share my home all of the time with everybody. Yeah. I just I just feel like as an introvert, it would it would just kill me. Um, yeah. And I wonder if sometimes I think we can be quite lazy and quite selfish and yeah. it, with, with our homes and our own spaces. Yeah. Also, that genuine like, I don't know if I could be extrovert all the time and that's so that's yeah. really fascinating to hear you say that actually you, yeah. you would class yourself naturally as an introvert and that perhaps we oh, can yeah. do more to overcome that than we think we can we can we can but but having said that you know I used to say you have to be exclusive to be inclusive so it wasn't just a f absolute free-for-all 24 7 um, there were many times when we would shut the door uh, we would have times of community prayer. Uh, we would have alone times. You maintain some boundaries and some exclusivity so that at other times that you've intentionally chosen, you can be very inclusive. But I guess we, you know, we were right there in the middle of it. And so there is there is a sense of intensity as well. And when you step out the door, <laughs> everybody's there. Um, and we And people began sleeping, you know, on our balcony, in our front yard, um, on our lounge couches. So it did It did become quite an intense atmosphere as well. And you, you had two small children at the same time as this. How did they cope with it? What did, what did they think of it? Did they just never know any different? They just thought it was normal. <laughs> I think they actually changed the dynamic in a really positive way because people, you know, people didn't even swear. I mean, they did swear, but they tried not to. <laughs> or, you know, if anyone, you know, imagine there's 30 people who are your friends and some of them are like, you know, Black Eyed Johnny, ex-Hells Angels enforcer, um, others who are like serious drug dealers or drug addicts or whatever. Um, and then one person, new person comes in and dares to kind of be rude to the kids or do something, which never really happens. Imagine the other 30 people, how they're going to react to that. You know, they're very protective. So you better not cross the kids or you're going to be in big trouble. They're like the gang mascots. So how old are your kids now, Craig? What do they think about it all now? They're 17 and 19 now. And they were probably um, 
two and three when we arrived. I mean, it was it was good. They liked it. They have no complaints. They've grown up with a very strong sense of justice and perspective on the world. That's very interesting. So, um, how long were you in Vancouver, and um, when when and how did that come to an end, and what did you guys do next as a family? I'm not sure I initially set out to do this intentionally, but I kind of have lived my life in seven-year seasons. I think it's biblical. I don't think it's very hard to do one thing longer than seven years without having a break or a change or a sabbatical. And then you can come back to it for another seven years if that's what God says. But the end of about seven years, um, I was diagnosed with cancer. And um, I uh, I was quite shocked I've cried out to God and I said, Lord, I've served vulnerable children. I've served the poor. I've served the fatherless. Most of my adult life are my own children now going to be fatherless. And I, God didn't answer me, but he did ask me. I felt like God was asking me a question back. And that was, if you only have five years left on this earth, what would you do with those five years? And of course, apart from caring for my family, I, I just felt like my life is is for vulnerable children. And um, in the downtown east side, there's no children actually, or <laughs> very, very, very few. And we had started something in Cambodia earlier that was really bearing a lot of fruit amongst children. And so that's what we sense God was, was pointing us towards. So tell us about that. So Earlier, while we had been in Cambodia, we were we were seeing Cambodian communities really um, devastated by the AIDS crisis in the early 2000s and children being orphaned and abandoned. Most children in orphanages are actually there because their families can't afford to take care of them. And so um, by using our resources to take them out of that situation, we're doing the very opposite of what's needed. But having said that, as we worked on kind of community-based care for children who'd been orphaned, we recognized that they had a whole range of kind of emotional and social needs that their families, you know, especially if their mother or father had died, were not necessarily able to meet, even if they were living with grandmother or extended family. And so began to look around and just sense, wow, within the church, you've got all these young Christians. What if each young Christian took on one of these kids as like a big brother. We started to train and equip young Christians to walk alongside those who walk alone, to take on one child each that they would disciple and coach and love and encourage and just be a, be a positive force. And studies have shown that that makes a massive difference in a child's life. And so that movement began to spread, and that was really in the hands of Cambodian leaders by the time we left the first time. But during my kind of crisis point, and I went through surgeries and dealt with the cancer, sense that God was saying, this is actually not just for Cambodia. This is something that is for the children of the world. So we moved back to Cambodia and launched Alongsiders International that would um, bring this concept that was bearing so much fruit simple but powerful idea to other nations beyond Cambodia and from there it began to spread. So tell us a little bit about the Alongsiders program how does it work in practical terms because it, it sounds amazing and you know honestly I, I live in in Cornwall a very rural area in, in the south of England my children have both grown up in a relatively small church where they don't have a huge number of peers their own age. And, you know, I was looking on the Alongsiders website this morning and 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 looking at it and thinking, goodness, this would be great for my own children. I would love them to be discipled by, you know, kids that are five years old or six years older than them. Yeah. But how, so how does it work um, for the for the young adults that want to get involved, that want to disciple younger children? What's the training look like? What's the support look like? How does it how does it work as a program? Yeah. So the way it works now, the way it's kind of evolved, um, and it very quickly evolved beyond children who were orphaned by AIDS, by the way, we, because what we found uh, was that if the youth and young adults, so it's, it's young, young people aged about 16 up to about 30, actually, become alongsiders. And we asked them to make this commitment. But we ask them to pray and seek God about who they should walk alongside, who should 
who they should disciple. Um, so right from the very beginning, that sense of ownership and responsibility is with them, not, not with them towards us, but with them towards God. And so that's very important because it's not going to be easy to persevere and to continue. So the very first thing they do is they pray and ask God who should be their little brother or sister. So I was talking to um, one of the alongsiders in Malawi, her name's Rachel. And I said, how did you choose your little sister? And she said, well, I, I heard about alongsiders. We, were, we wanted to form a group in our church. And uh, I went to my home to pray. And she said, I live in a village that's notorious for trafficking and prostitution. And as I was praying, I looked out my window and I saw this little girl named Esther, my neighbor, and her family were teaching her how to dance seductively for men. And I knew in that moment that 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 she Esther should be my little sister. And uh, so Rachel began to come alongside Esther and uh, we asked them to make a commitment of visiting minimum once a week. But ideally, we say you want to choose someone who's really close to your house. So when you come home from school or work or wherever, they're just there. Like you, you can't miss them. You don't have to go out of your way to make this happen. And in poorer communities, people know each other. So that works very organically. And so once a week, you at least you want to be spending some significant time with this child and just investing in their life, hanging out. It's very relational. But once a month, we give them a comic book to go through, like a discipleship comic book, very holistic. We cover 27 holistic topics in their own heart language. Um, everything from you know health and hygiene to how to pray to um, caring for creation to nonviolence, um, how to study, just like very, very holistic, but everything very biblically based. Uh, and so they go through these comics together. But those are really just to provide some structure. The real power in this is the relationship. Last week, I actually wrote a WhatsApp to Rachel and said, how's Esther doing? Because I know it's been a few years. Um, and she said, well, Esther just um, finished up high school and now she wants to be a nurse. And that's the kind of transformation that takes place when a young Christian decides to make this commitment. And very often those, those little brothers and sisters become alongsiders themselves when they turn 60. Almost always it starts within a church as a group. Well, the way it actually starts is that one person who has a bit of a network or is willing to be a bit of a pioneer will contact us and say, I want to start an alongsiders movement. And so we'll train them and then they will go church to church each group has to have at least five alongsiders, so it's very group-based. Uh, in the West, with things like Big Brothers or Big Buddies, it's quite individualistic. It's kind of one-to-one. -one. You don't even really know the others, um, but it's like, you know, me and my little buddy. Uh, but in Asia and Africa, you know, we ne it needs to be very community, you know, group-based. So even though it is one-to-one, -one, they're in groups. Yeah, I was going to ask that, like, how, what are the, the cultural differences? It must be different yeah, because culture is. is different. <laughs> it is. And, and we're, actually, we're actually in the process of starting alongside us in Europe right now. And um, really, the guy who's pioneering that, Marcian van der Maas, he in Holland, uh, he is, he's completely kind of reworking what it all looks like. The basics are there, of course, that discipleship model between young young adults or youth and children, one-to-one. -one. That's at the core, centered on Christ, all of those things. But how that all plays out looks very different in a Western context. Um, but there's also a huge difference between rich and poor in, in the sense of the rich actually have more obstacles because we don't know our neighbors. We commute to church. Uh, we're not rooted in our neighborhoods in the way that the poor are. Um, so we have more obstacles. We have more work to do because we're further from the kingdom and we're more isolated ourselves. And so it spreads like wildfire amongst the poor and amongst the rich, the Westerners, it's a bit slower. Yeah, it's it's a real challenge for the Western church, isn't it? To it get is. us to break, you know, we're so comfortable in our own homes with our own space and 
both my parents and my grandparents grew up on a council estate. We were talking the other day about how the council estates were designed in the UK with these chicken wire fences. You know, you never had six foot high solid wooden fences yeah, between properties. Exactly. Everyone chatted over the garden gate. You all knew your neighbours. And then suddenly within just a couple of generations, yeah. the British particularly are yeah. very, very we like our own space and our own boundaries and and yeah. even within the church i feel like that's that's a problem now isn't it well i mean it's a it's a drive towards independence from one another you know and turning away from the the messiness but the necessity of interdependence and so we, we have a lot of we have a lot bigger issues to deal with than just that we can't do alongside us because we don't know our neighbors we don't know our neighbours for very serious reasons. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. So you've now got alongside us, uh, I think your website says in 21 countries around the world, you've got over 14,000 children and young people. That's an incredible amount of growth. So what's your role in the organisation now? How do you run that across so mm. many countries? Actually, we're in at least 25 countries, uh, nearly 20,000 children and youth. My role is is to nurture the movement in a way that local leaders will have a real sense of ownership. One of my goals is not to create some kind of charismatic uh, leader figure that people think is central. You know, if Craig goes or Craig falls, then it's all over. My goal is that most alongsiders around the world have no idea who Craig is. And so I'm very much in the background helping to raise up local leaders which we have and now we have multiple discipleship movements even in one country so in Rwanda there's four discipleship movements there's about 4,000 alongsiders in Tanzania and Zambia there's multiple movements in Uganda and so my role is to figure out um, how do we scale up and how do we fill in the gaps that arise as a as a movement just begins to explode? Since the beginning of 2021, so in the last 18 months-ish, um, we've doubled twice in size. And so we're, you know, that's 400% growth in 18 months. So if we keep growing like that, then um, we need to keep changing our structures in ways that will will work. But I love that. Yeah, you sound like a man who's who's up for a challenge by the things I, you've done I, in the past. <laughs> I mean, I'm just wired like that. I, you know, people call me a missionary, but I actually say that I'm a social entrepreneur that wants to start new initiatives that will benefit those on the margins. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. Balanced. Relevant. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church, wherever you live, however you worship. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe now at premierchristianity.com. Now only £5 for three months. And in your latest book um, that you've written called Subversive Mission, yeah. you're telling some of your own stories, telling the story of, you know, some some of these initiatives, but also unpacking the ideas behind the Ephesians leadership and, and ministry giftings, but yeah. how they work in a cross-cultural setting. Tell me a little bit about that, because it's interesting for you, I guess, as a New Zealander who's lived in Cambodia and served there cross-culturally, been over to Canada, now back to Cambodia. And it, this is all about how we basically avoid as Westerners parachuting ourselves into places where we are not native and doing things in a way that does not empower and strengthen the local church. Uh, well, actually, the first title of that book um, and the title, the working title was always How Not to Be a White Saviour. Um, but the, the publisher rejected that title. And a lot of people actually rejected that title. Some people said to me, if you call it that, I refuse to read it. But it gives you a sense of what it's about. And I, I think actually, you know, there's a lot of paralysis around missions and missionary work. It, in fact, I, I would suggest that that word is an absolute liability. We have to get rid of it. We, we should stop talking about missions and missionary work and start talking about loving our neighbors. In fact, even the verse go into all the world is problematic now because of our colonial history. 
let's leave that verse to our African and Asian brothers and sisters. And for those of us who perhaps are from European background, let's look at verses like, how do we love our neighbors? God has called us to love our neighbors, not just across the street, but across the ocean. And people are still called to that, but because of our very real and valid awareness of colonialism and the way that things have worked out, even in missions, um, there's a real paralysis. People don't don't know how to serve. You know, you look at J Jim Elliott, who was martyred in 1956, missionary, um, you know, hailed a hero, a martyr for the faith. And then 2017, John Allen Chow, martyred in almost exactly the same way, also killed by a spear and hailed an absolute fool and a flag bearer for colonialism. <laughs> That's how society has changed in, our, in the way that we think. So let's get rid of get rid of the word missions, missionary. Those words have way too much baggage. And we need new frameworks and new ways of understanding how we serve in the world. But you're obviously not saying that, you know, a, a white Western person can't feel called to uh, a country outside of Europe, because obviously you, you were a New Zealander who felt very strongly that God had called you to Cambodia. So that's right. So that's I'm not, not what you're saying, saying is it? The cons, the, I'm not saying that the idea or the calling doesn't exist. I'm saying those labels are very mm. unhelpful. So we need new framework that will help give us a sense of, oh, this is a way that is healthy, that we can serve in the world and love our neighbours. So this book is really, in many ways, for those who feel paralyzed. <laughs> um, so I looked at the, the Ephesians 5, 4 framework of the fivefold ministries of apostle, pastor, evangelist, teacher, prophet. And what I realized is those are actually roles for insiders. But when we come as outsiders with a lot of power and money and resources, our goal really needs to be to raise up insiders to help them have a sense of ownership, help strengthen them, because they're the ones who are going to take this forward. Just in alongsiders, you know, our role is just simply as kind of catalysts. It had, if it's not owned by local people, it's not going to work. And we saw that during COVID when all, you know, 80% of missionaries went home. Most of their ministries collapsed. Um, so, you know, we're, we're still just not getting it. We talk a lot about empowerment but we don't do it. And so this is a framework of understanding, okay, if you're a pastor in London, when you go to Nairobi, Kenya, you don't go as a pastor, you go as a midwife to help local Christians give birth to the faith communities that God has placed within them. And same with a prophet. You don't come as a prophet, you come as an ally to amplify the voices of local prophets. And so I go through each of those and reframe it and show what does this look like then if you're an outsider? We know what that looks like as an insider. We know what a, a pastor is as an insider. But as an outsider, what does it look like? And has that come in, in some form from your own reflections of the ministries you've been involved in, in your own life experience in cross-cultural settings? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not gifted in all of those things. I'm probably apostolic and prophetic are probably my giftings. And so I recognize that I need to come not not as, a, as an apostle who starts new initiatives myself and then one day hands it over, but I need to help catalyze new initiatives together with local leaders that will own it from, the, from day one and take it forward. Um, I don't come as a prophet into Cambodia. Like I said, we've been evicted twice from slums. Uh, there's a young woman who's being evicted from her slum that I know, her name's Depvani. And her and her three, four other young women dragged their beds into the busiest intersection in Cambodia and said, we have no place to lay our heads, so we'll lay our heads here. Immediately, as you can imagine, all the traffic is an absolute gridlock and horn honking. And then the, the soldiers, you can hear their boots running towards these women as they they grab them and throw them into a van and drag them off to prison. And so my role actually in that kind of situation, who's experiencing, at least on the outside, the same thing, being evicted from a slum, but not, not impacting me in the same way, is not to lead the protest, actually, but to amplify the voices of those who are local prophets, like Deb Bunny, to tell her story outside of the context where her story is being told. 
And so if you say, well, white people have no role in the world and should never be in Cambodia, who will tell Dep Bunny's story to other white people, to other people who have who have influence and who could make a difference? Are you willing to say that we should have nothing to do with that and we should just say, well, Dep Bunny, I don't want to be a white savior, so rot in prison because I am paralyzed and I can't do anything. I would rather say, well, my role is to come as an ally and to amplify her voice and to put a spotlight on what's happening. And so for each of those roles, we have to figure out what does it look like as a person of power and privilege in this context? Yeah, and I think that is really challenging, isn't it, for white people in the Western world at the moment? I certainly feel that slight paralysis. And you touch on in the book as well, just the basics of the money that we have here in the West can do a lot in a lot of other countries. And yet to feel like maybe that's not the answer all the time. It's quite hard because you're then trying to balance this. Well, Jesus yeah. calls me to be generous and God wants me, obviously, to share my resources with those that are, that are poorer than I am. But also, I don't want to be causing harm by just chucking money at a problem that maybe needs another solution. How yeah. do we balance that? What's what's the answer? It's good just to frame it, I think. So where Jesus is born in Bethlehem, there's the census taking place, right? And it's run by the empire. Empires love censuses because they can figure out how much money they can tax and how many men they can recruit as soldiers. So it's about money and power. So Jesus is born in the shadow of the twin pillars of empire, money and power. And money and power have always gone where empire goes, where there is colonialism. It's about money and power. And that's where we've gone wrong in missions when we come very often from empires, <laughs> the British Empire, um, to other places. We come yoked with money and power. And that's where we go wrong. And so if we don't recognize that those things are not how Jesus brought the kingdom, you know, in Luke chapter three, after Jesus is born in Luke two, John the Baptist calls two very specific groups to repentance, the tax collectors and the soldiers, money and power. And that represents what the upside down kingdom looks like. It's it's a place where money and power are not central. It's not that they don't exist, but it's not that we, we don't use money and power to force change. We have to use the spirit. <laughs> we have to use the resources of the community. And those are the things that will offer people dignity that they are the ones that God is going to use. When we bring in our outside money, um, what that says is, oh, you you can't solve this. The, the people who have told you that you're useless and worthless were right. And your only hope is an outsider coming with money and power. In contrast, you know, even the feeding of the 5,000. You know, first of all, Jesus sends out his missionaries two by two and says, don't take any money. Don't take any money. Literally says that. Then they come back and they're faced with another huge need, 5,000 hungry people. And um, they say, oh, their first response is paralysis like us, right? You better send them away, Jesus. Their second response is, well, money. Do we, should we take half a year's wages and buy bread for all these people? Jesus again says no. Finally, they have eyes to see that in this community, there are those who have something in their hands. And it's the most vulnerable. It's the young. It's the poor. This little boy with virtually nothing in his hands. And that's when Jesus is able to work miracles. And that sends the message to that little boy and the whole community that you already hold in your hands the things that God wants to use to transform you. But does God never answer people's needs and prayers with financial provision that might come from somewhere outside of the local area? Yeah, I'm not going to say never. But when our knee-jerk response and our pattern and our programs all are based on that, then that's an issue. And particularly if we want to create something that is replicable, uh, if you plant a church in a way that uses outside resources, um, you have basically told all those people in that church that the next church they plant will need outside resources. And so you've basically condemned that church to either never plant another church or to only plant churches where you will keep giving money from outside. So you've created something that's not scalable and will never grow beyond what you're doing. Um, and I'm very interested in responses that will really, really transform communities, not just temporarily address a, a need, 
Um, so we need to think really carefully about how do we do things in ways that are sustainable and using local resources as much as possible. If you're building a bridge or the community is in an emergency, there's situations where outside resources are appropriate. But I'm talking about real community transformation, not just building a bridge. Yeah, I mean, in the book, you talk, you give the example of um, some houses that were built. I can't remember from which country it was, but they were built by an outside group that came from a church um, in the West. And they were built without involvement of the local community. And they were they they should have been on stilts, but they weren't on stilts. And the, yeah. the, the local people couldn't live in them. And, and they were just inappropriate for their environment. So that, that, you know, you can look at situations like that and say very easily and quickly. Well, obviously, that was a response that did not involve local people but yeah. i also know of lots of charities that work that in nice developing houses, countries yeah. that do you know do fundraise from the west but that are very embedded in their local communities and are able to create infrastructure housing schools things like that that do have a very positive impact but nonetheless do probably require quite a lot of funding from parts of yeah. the world that have more resources but a lot of people would argue that that is a just redistribution of yeah. The resources we have in the world and that and that's biblical wouldn't they yes so i mean i guess the reason i state it so strongly is because we always start with money we are so capitalist in our mindset that we are blind to any other solution and so i spend a lot of time bagging the use of money and pointing out all the ways it goes wrong because we always start with that. And uh, anyone who's confronted with poverty, their immediate response is, how can I use money to solve this and take away my discomfort? And actually, we need more people who are willing to say, what if we didn't use money or didn't use much money or use money in a very, very careful background way, but the real machine for change was people and relationships and local resources what if we started with those things that are actually from the kingdom of god instead of immediately saying let's do a fundraising gala and send over this to these poor people yeah I, money is something tangible that we feel that we have it within our control so it's something yeah. we can just do normally with the relative ease whereas you're right those harder responses where the the disciples were forced and thinking about how they were going to feed the crowd if it wasn't just by going and buying more lunch actually yeah. pushes us back into god doesn't it asking him yeah. the question what do you want to do in this situation lord how can i pray into that how yeah. can i have faith for that and then that is a situation that grows us as christians as well as actually potentially working out god's kingdom purposes in, in a different way yeah, and that's not to undermine what you said before about the need for redistribution. Um, in fact, it goes along with it. We need to redistribute our money because get, even in our hands, it's dangerous. You know, it's dangerous in the hands of people who are trying to be do-gooders amongst the poor, but it's just dangerous in our hands in general. And so we do need to find ways to redistribute that will be meaningful and be just. I'm not in any way speaking out against generosity. What would be the one thing that you'd like people to take away from the message of this book? What's the thing that's, you know, that was really beating on your heart prophetically when you sat down to write it? What I would say is God is still calling us to love our brothers and sisters around the world in ways that are wise and humble. Don't allow yourself to be paralyzed by the fears of getting it wrong or being a white savior, all of those things. But also don't be ignorant and don't be stupid. There are ways to educate yourself. There are ways to serve that are really beautiful and healthy and will completely change your life. What have been some of the trickiest moments for you serving cross-culturally? What, what's been the, the moments you thought, oh my goodness, I'm not sure I'm in the right place. I'm not sure I can do that. And equally, what have been some of the moments where you've really seen God either do the most miraculous things or, or really teach you something very profound? I think for me, much of the world grapples with corruption. It's just an evil scourge. It's like a cancer that just destroys everything it touches. For me, with a kind of a prophetic, you know, speak truth to power kind of personality, it's very hard to see that. I see it as bullying very often, where those who have power 
local officials, local police, soldiers, local generals or tycoons are just crushing the poor. It not only breaks my heart, but it makes me very, very angry. I have had to learn to be more careful. <laughs> One of the dangers of being fluent in Cambodian language and being you know, kind of prophetic in nature is that you can get yourself into real trouble. There's been times when I have spoken out against powerful people and I've had death threats. We've had people camped outside who are watching me and added to blacklists and things like that. And so I've had to learn wiser ways. A mentor of mine, a Cambodian man who is a gifted prophetic Christian leader, said to me, Craig, these ways that you protest in the West, you will just be crushed immediately. It doesn't work here. We have this sort of sense of the way our democracy works and that obviously we're going to be able to express ourselves when we yeah. disagree with something in a certain way that just doesn't work in other places. It doesn't work like that. We have to speak out against injustice. And that's partly the role that we have as safe Westerners is we can speak out and get away with it. We won't be found floating in a river the next day with a bullet in the back of our head. Um, so we do have a role in that. But when you're there on the ground, then you, you'll also cause great trouble. You need We need to find ways to speak of justice and find ways to work for justice. And so that's been part of my journey. And um, I tell a story in the book of how we were with a group of Cambodian leaders who went on a retreat to this Shalom Valley camp. And we were up on a balcony watching the movie Animal Farm. One of the Cambodians had added Khmer subtitles to the Animal Farm. And in Cambodia, you're just not allowed to have any kind of political activity or anything that looks like that. And like two minutes into this movie, I'm, I remembered, gosh, this is way more revolutionary than I could. I just kind of thought this is a good kind of morality tale. But actually, it's like the, the animals are overthrowing Farmer Jones with pitchforks. Like it's about revolution. And just as like that's kind of dawning on me, three police show up. And they're standing below the balcony. Like one of the Cambodian leaders, a young woman says to me, oh, Craig, the police are here. So I'm like, I, be I begin to get up and they kind of know like, Craig should just stay away from the police. It's just better. <laughs> and, and probably a white person in this situation isn't going to make things smoother. So she's like, no, no, Craig, you just stay there. I'll go and deal with them. So she goes down. So it's like, she's like a 25 year old young girl dealing with these police jackboots like huge guns and they're like what are you doing and she's like we're just watching a children's animated movie <laughs> and so they look up to the balcony and from the angle they're standing at they can't see the subtitles so they believe her they're like oh you are watching a children's animated movie and even like Cambodian police still have this kind of childlikeness and they just think oh that's cool let's watch it as well so they stand there the whole time and watch this movie <laughs> just kind of enjoying it with can't understand guns. any of it they can't understand no. what's going on they can't see the subtitles they don't realize that we're actually watching this very revolutionary so what's what is life like for you now are you still in Cambodia so um, I'm currently outside Cambodia for a year Cambodia closed down their schools for 18 months during COVID. And so my daughter was uh, trying to finish high school and doing it by distance. And so we said, um, we've been in another seven-year cycle in Cambodia. Actually, it's, it's stretched to nine years because of COVID. But we decided to take a year out in New Zealand to help her finish high school. And we'll go back to Cambodia. So you've still got big plans for Alongsiders and life in Cambodia then? Yeah, alongside us is growing in leaps and bounds. Uh, we have a vision to transform the lives of 50,000 children and youth by 2025. Well on track to see that happen. But in the next phase, I figure, you know, I'm reaching the end of my 40s. I figure I probably have one more chance to do something. And I would like to do something uh, about corruption um, and see what Together with those who are, you know, experiencing it every day, what could be done to address this absolute cancer? So I don't know. It will, It's not that I'm, I'm going to come with any solutions. It, it'll be me just sitting and listening to people 
and telling their stories and saying what could be done here maybe there's something that we could do against this thing that is crushing us well i look forward to hearing those stories and and seeing what happens with that journey because i'm sure if it's anything like the last two journeys it will be absolutely yeah. riveting <laughs> we need to do something i mean there's probably not many things is tough and ingrained and entrenched is corruption around the world and in the western world we barely even realize it's there but it's such a huge part of people's lives in asia and africa and, and much of the world do you think it is worse i mean it's it's more visible there do you think our uh, our cultures in the west do we still have that but it's just different and we don't see it or is it genuinely not as much as a problem or is it just a problem in a different way i would say it's it does exist in the west but it's we have systems and structures and checks and balances you know, if one of your local politicians takes a bribe, and probably that takes place occasionally in England, um, but there are checks and balances to catch that person uh, and deal with him, and then he or she will go to a court of law that is governed by rules that will make sure that he or she is punished appropriately. Mm. None of that uh, is working <laughs> yeah. in in much of the world. You know, corruption is so pervasive that it will take many, many people holding many lights to bring any light into that darkness. There's no way that I'm even talking about reforming every aspect of corruption. But for me, it's it's that very grassroots level corruption. You see it in the Bible, the, the scribes ripping off the widows, uh, where a widow can't register her land and her land is taken from her. You know, just that very low level stuff. And it has a massive impact for, for Christian organisations and charities as well, doesn't it? I have a friend who's Ethiopian and he runs a charity in Ethiopia. And I've heard him tell many stories of the things that they cannot access because he refuses to bribe. As a point of principle for him as a Christian, he's like, I'm not going to get involved in this process. But the practical outworking for him as a charity is he can't get on the government list to get a car. And, you know, there are so yeah. many practical implications because he chooses to take a stand and I guess as Christians we have to believe that God will provide for us in other ways and, and honour that sacrifice but yeah. but it really does you know have a huge impact doesn't it? Oh it's it impacts every every day of your life even in Cambodia teachers require contributions from students every single day you have to give them money uh, you don't pass an exam unless you pay the teacher like just you cannot turn around without being impacted by corruption. That was Craig Greenfield speaking to me, Emma Fowl, here on Premier Christian Radio. We hope you enjoyed this interview. For hundreds more conversations just like this one, you can download the profile as a podcast. Just search for the profile wherever you normally get your podcast from or visit Premier Christian Radio forward slash the profile. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.